This episode of Physically Spiritual will explore how men can form their lives to Christ as bridegroom of the church in the sacrament of holy orders. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I have discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Welcome back to Physically Spiritual, everyone. As we get started this week, I wanted to share a new and amazing opportunity with you. As we have been uh, doing work here at Awaken Catholic over the last months, so many amazing things have happened as people have encountered this content online or attended a live event with Awaken Catholic. But we need your help. Uh, so this mission has gone through now two seasons of Physically Spiritual as we're wrapping up with these last three episodes and a season of seven other great Catholic podcasts. And all of this work, as you could probably understand, costs money. And, and honestly, this has uh, been a great, I think these first few seasons, a great proof of concept that what we're doing can work, that people have interest in this content and it can make a difference in the world. So I want to invite you to consider becoming a part of this mission in a new way. We are currently running a Kickstart the Mission campaign. So if you are watching this video um, or, or listening to this podcast as it's being released, we're running a Kickstarter campaign to try to fund this mission for the next six months. You know, actually, the last six episodes of this season of Physically Spiritual, I funded out of my own pocket. Uh, I, I really believe in this message and I want uh, to be able to share what the Lord has shared with me, but we can't continue to do this alone without more help from our audience and people participating. A new exciting wrinkle in uh, in how you can support the show, we're actually starting individual funding communities, patron communities for each show. So if you want to support Physically Spiritual, you can go to physicallyspiritual.com and join the patron community for this show. So along with a gift as, as a, for as little as $5 a month or as much as you can give, there's six different tiers uh, of giving levels. And at each level, there's an, another perk or another level of engagement you get with the show. We have some exciting things coming up like Ask Me Anything episodes where I will take episodes and literally answer your questions. Um, one of the, the, the things I've been doing in this show is as I got it started, I was actually writing a book about a lot of what I've been talking about. And essentially, the first two seasons of the show have covered the content of what that book was going to say. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure a lot of you who have been listening, you know, want to go deeper on specific topics or have questions or maybe want to make comments. Uh, so I want to share all of your thoughts on the show, too, and, and dig into this material deeper. And one of the ways I think it could happen is if you all ask questions. So at one of the, the levels, you'll get access to the full Ask Me Anything episodes. Uh, there'll be sort of a, a mini version or the intro of it will be published to the general audience. Uh, at the next level of giving, you'll have access to ask the questions and your questions will have sort of the first response and you'll also get a, a sticker. Uh, one of the logos I've been using is that Ventruvian Man by, um, by Leonardo da Vinci with the crown of thorns around it. So it'll be the sticker of that. And then at higher levels, uh, a lot of you know from watching the show that I offer coaching and spiritual direction. Um, so uh, one of the giving levels will include free coaching that you'll get regularly from me. And then above that, I'll even come 
and do an event for your your home or your parish or any other group that you want to have. So I would encourage you to go over to physicallyspiritual.com, find out how you can support the show and what all the different uh, perks are at the different giving levels. Please, if you can, like, follow, subscribe, hit the bell. If you're on YouTube, comment, rate, and review. All this interaction helps these social media platforms to know that people want to see this content. Um, So the more you interact with the content, the more other people are going to see it. And you're helping us to get this great message out. So even if you can't support the show financially, you can support it by just being here, watching the episodes, and then interacting with it on some level. And then finally, uh, you've heard us say before, but we have a free app for you to enjoy where you can get access to all the content put out here at Awaken Catholic. It's a great alternate to social media, and there's a lot of other features too. So go to theawakenapp.io or search for the Awaken app on your Google Play Store or Apple App Store. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, Sorry for the kind of extended announcements at the beginning, but it's a really um, exciting time for us as we're trying to fully fund this mission. Um, And I just wanted to share a little bit more about that. So as season three has been progressing, we're now in the final three episodes of the season. These 25 episodes have gone through what I talked at the beginning as a three-legged stool. They're sort of the, the three supports that help us to grow closer to God, that help us to get to the point um, where God is really guiding our lives and, and drawing us closer to him. And these these three levels or these three legs that are under the stool, these supports are the life of the sacraments, receiving the sacraments the church offers us. Two, it's our mystical prayer, our prayer with the Lord, deep personal prayer with God. And then finally, asceticism, the prayer, the sacrifice, and the things that we offer to the Lord to mortify our flesh and our desires in order to to free us, uh, to become present to what the Lord is bringing us to in our life. So these three uh, different areas, we've had seven or eight episodes going through each of these legs of the stool. And this is our final episode on the sacraments, about the sacrament of holy orders. And this sacrament is one of the two sacraments of service. The sacraments of service are what the catechism calls them. And when I I talked about the sacrament of matrimony a few episodes ago, I talked about it from a greater context, kind of a, a, a creation context or a cosmological context of how it fits into God's bigger plan. And I think this is important with holy orders too. So we need to start to have a a vision of what stewardship means and getting rid of a vision of what domination is. Uh, So when when we see the world as as modern people, as contemporary people, we're often influenced by non-Christian philosophies. And these non-Christian philosophies often see everything through the dynamics of power. And, And so our understanding of how we relate to nature or how we relate to other people is through this power dynamic or a dynamic of domination. The Christian vision isn't this at all. In the Christian vision, there's there's this idea of stewardship that even though as, as humans, we have a certain uh, dominion over nature, it's a dominion of stewardship. In a sense, it's a servant leadership. And even over other people, it's, it's a stewardship that we're called to. And what a stewardship is, it's It's a giving to the thing in order for it to become more and more what it truly is. So in the context of nature, I used the example before of like a fruit tree. 
You know, if, if you have the tree out in nature, it's just going to grow and grow and grow. And a lot of the energy of the plant is expanded in that growth of branches and leaves and everything else. Well, human ingenuity teaches us to do something like pruning the tree. And by pruning the tree, it directs more of the energy of the tree into the fruit. So there's this, this relationship between humanity and the rest of nature by which uh, we're blessing nature and nature is blessing us. There's this reciprocal giving. Um, and this is the, the relationship we're called to with the whole natural order. And similarly in our relationships with other people. You know, when we talked about uh, matrimony, we talked about family. And motherhood and fatherhood is this kind of a servant leadership where, yeah, they, they have a certain dominion over their children. They're, they're raising their children. But we shouldn't interpret that with the lens of domination and, and ownership and, and, um, and on all these, these lenses that our, our culture invites us to put on. But we have to have this, this vision of, of love, of self-gift. And this is important now when we talk about holy orders, too, because deacons, priests, bishops, they're the leaders of the church, their call, part of their mission is leadership of the church, of our home parishes, of our diocese, and of the church at large. Uh, so when we, we see the church, we can't interpret it through these political lens, through this power dynamic. But we have to understand that what they're called to do is to have a stewardship of the church, similar to the kind of stewardship that mothers and fathers have with their children. So I would encourage you as I'm going through this episode to make sure you keep that those those lenses on the stewardship lenses, the gospel lenses, and and just check yourself if you start to have that interpretation of of domination and power. So in holy orders, we use that term. It's a plural holy orders. It's a sacrament by which men are ordained for three different orders: the diaconate or or deacons, a, 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 an ordination for service, the ordination of priests or the presbyterate. Presbyters is the word that the New Testament uses or the episcopate or bishops. These are the three orders or three levels of ordination that are part of the sacrament of holy orders. But the foundation of all orders is the order of Christ. Christ is king of the universe, but the scripture also presents Christ as a new high priest. Read through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and you'll see a deep and rich exploration of this idea of Christ as high priest, both Christ perfectly fulfilling the priesthood that was present in the Old Testament, the priesthood of the temple, but then also a fulfillment of that in the new, in the new covenant, the New Testament, that Christ is, a, is also a new priest in the order of Melchizedek. So those that receive holy orders take a participation or become um, people who live out the priesthood of Christ here on earth in a special way. Now, all of us as Christians are, are called into a certain kind of priesthood, what's often called a baptismal priesthood or, or a royal priesthood. So as baptized and confirmed Christians, we are called to live the three offices of Christ or the, the, the three kind of ministries of Christ as priest, prophet, and king. So we're all called to this sort of general priesthood, and this is a priesthood on the natural level in our families and whatever work the, the Lord is calling us to. But the ministerial priesthood, the priesthood of holy orders, is specifically ministry in the church. So the, the priest, the deacon, and the bishop become uh, an instrumental cause of God's grace in a way that us lay people are not. 
So let, let's um, dig into this a little bit more. One way I like to think of this is the idea that Christ often talks about is the kingdom of God. Christ says the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and what, what he's saying there, it, it, there's a lot of layers to this. It's not, it's not a flat reality. It's a dense and deep and rich reality. So the kingdom of God, I like to think of that where the king is, the kingdom is. So what Christ is saying is that God is here. God is present. I am here with you. But the kingdom is also a foretaste of what's to come. Right. So part of the New Testament is this prophecy of a new heavens and a new earth, this sort of upgrade to the created order or, or making more explicit its its supernatural roots um, in, in the, the new heaven and the new earth. So what the kingdom of God is, is a foretaste of this kingdom. And this is most powerfully expressed in the ministry of the church, in the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. We have this foretaste of the kingdom. So what a, a a priest is becoming in a specific way is a minister of God's grace in this new kingdom, in this here but not yet reality, in this foretaste of eternity, the priest is becoming an instrumental cause of God's grace. An instrument just meaning that God's using them in order to distribute his grace. Instead of God directly doing it, God's choosing to make us essential uh, to what he wants to do. So in the actual ordination, let's go through our three layers of the sacrament. First, the sacramentum tantum, the, the, the sign in itself. What's, what are we seeing on the surface? What do our senses get? First, the minister of ordination is a bishop. The, the, the third layer of holy orders is a bishop. So a local bishop would ordain the priests and the deacons for his own diocese. And then typically when a bishop is ordained, there's normally at least three other bishops present. And those three bishops ordain him together. So the matter of the sacrament, the physical sign that's happening is the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands. And, and note this isn't unique to ordination because the sacrament of confirmation, uh, part of that is also a laying on of hands. But but here in, in, in the ordination, like I said, it's, it's taking it to the next level, right? There's something shared in the common priesthood for the baptized and confirmed, you know, we have also the hands laid on us in those sacraments. But then this third laying on of hands, uh, it sort of intensifies the pitch at which the person is living out the life of Christ as priest, as high priest. They're, they're in, in a more intense way living out Christ's priesthood in the world. And then each of these different ordinations of the deacon, the priest, and the bishop, there's a different prayer of ordination, and each one expresses what's unique to the ministry. For example, deacons are called especially to a ministry of service, meaning to, to do the work of service of the church. And in the New Testament, it talks about the bishops or the, sorry, the deacons going out and distributing alms to the people so that the, the, uh, the apostles didn't have time to see to that ministry anymore. Uh, Deacons are also involved in baptizing, witnessing marriages, and they are especially involved in the Mass as an ordinary minister of communion, proclaiming the gospel, and, and the priest delegates also at times for them to preach at the altar or at the, um, at the pulpit. The priest, on the other hand, is participating more perfectly in the ministry of the bishop. So in that, they celebrate the Mass, have the power to forgive sins and confession, uh, they can have the power to confirm delegated to them at the Easter Vigil, but even at other times of the year by their local bishop. 
Uh, they also uh, do everything that the deacon does, and then the sacrament of anointing of the sick. And then finally, a, a bishop, a bishop, the fullness of holy orders, in a sense, the, the most perfect um, image of this priestly ministry of Christ on earth. We believe they're a successor to one of the 12 apostles. So in a special way, they take on the role of governance in the church, this servant leadership, this uh, this uh, stewardship over the church, where they're meant to make a total gift of themselves so that the church can become what she's called to be. So bishops, um, what they can do that priests can't is ordain, to ordain other priests, to ordain deacons, and then even ordain other bishops. The second layer of the sacrament of holy orders, or the uh, res et sacramentum, the reality and sign, this is what happens definitively, regardless of the holiness of the recipient, the holiness of the minister. Um, this is the effect that the sacrament has on the priest as long as the sacrament is valid, or, or deacon or bishop. And this is sometimes called the sacramental character or the seal of the sacrament. This seal is, is a, a permanent change or a permanent reconfiguration of the, the spirit of the, of the priest, deacon, or bishop. So this means that like after they die, that seal is still going to be present for them in heaven. Now, remember for all people, when we talked about baptism and confirmation, this, these sacraments also carry with them a seal. Remember I said that this uh, ministerial priesthood is an intensification of the priesthood of all the baptized and confirmed, but now taken to, to do ministry in the church in a special way. So the sacrament of ordination or holy orders also has this seal with it. This seal, this permanent character, this reconfiguration of the soul opens up a, a new channel of grace. And like I said before, the specific grace of holy orders is that they become in a new way, in a special way, an instrumental cause of God to give grace to the world. They become another Christ in a way no one else is. And then the final layer of the sacrament, the res tantum, the, the reality itself or the reality in totality. This is how, this is to live how Christ would live. The specific grace to live how Christ would live. So a, a priest, a deacon or a bishop more than anyone else is called to be an image of Christ on earth, to live a life conformed to Christ, to live how Christ would live. This is why at core, at the heart, why, why men receive the sacrament of ordination and why it's always connected in some way to celibacy too, to this state of, of giving up marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. Um, so there's this conformity to Christ in a way that the rest of the baptized, the rest of the confirmed are not. So what does this have to do with physically spiritual Right, this is something I contemplated going through these seven sacraments was, was like, I kind of getting off topic to talk about holy orders. Like, isn't this something just purely spiritual? And the more I thought about it and prayed about the topic, uh, I realized no. Because the foundation of priestly ministry is the, the humanity, the human nature of Christ, and then the humanity, the human nature of the priest being conformed to Christ. And when I think this is essential because this is really what's, I think, most deeply attacked about the sacrament of holy orders in our modern world. One, that, that priests 
uh, deacons and, and bishops are only men. And then second, that these men are celibate or, or each order is connected to celibacy in some way. You know, in the Western Church or the Roman Catholic Church, a permanent deacon can be married before they're ordained a deacon. But after they're ordained, like if their wife were to pass away, they actually can't get remarried after their ordination. And there are even special circumstances where a priest could be married before they're ordained. For example, if they are converting from a, a rite or, or another ecclesial community where they have priests that are ordained, for example, like the Anglican Church, uh, they can come and become a Roman Catholic priest, but then be married still. Well, in these cases, they can't get remarried. And in some Eastern rites of the Catholic Church, the priests can be married too. They're married and then can be ordained. But similarly, if their wife passes on, they can't get remarried. But even in these other rites of the church where the priests are married, they choose from amongst the celibate clergy those who will become bishops. So you see, even when there are situations where um, where the, the deacon or priest can be married before they're ordained, it's still on some layer connected to a celibate state. Uh, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more later. Uh, and this is because the body of the priest is essential. The body of the priest is essential. It's not accidental. It's not secondary. It's not a purely spiritual work. You know, we, we, I often like to quote this line from St. Thomas Aquinas, that grace doesn't destroy nature, but it heals and perfects it. I'm probably poorly quoting it right now. I'll throw it in the show notes for you. But this idea of what, what the, the priest is receiving um, from uh, the ordination from God through the instrumental cause of the bishop that's ordaining him is this greater conformity to Christ. And Christ was a man. Christ was a human being, fully human, and yet at the same time fully divine. So the priest's body is not accidental, is not unimportant, but is essential. Uh, so this is why I think holy orders is important to discuss on physically spiritual. In order to be a father... We have to first be a son and a brother. In order to be a father, we have to first be a son and a brother. And the same would go with motherhood. In order to be a mother, you have to first be a daughter and a sister. And, and, and what's going on spiritually, our, our growth spiritually, our growth into full maturity into Christ, uh, follows the design of how we mature naturally. It follows the design of, of going from infant to child, um, and through this maturing phase into being a man or a woman. So we also spiritually mature. And this is essential because priesthood is spiritual fatherhood. We, we literally address our priests as father. And this is because it's spiritual fatherhood. One of the ways the church describes the family is the domestic church. And I think we can describe our parishes as an ecclesial family or a church family. <laughs> so those men who are, are married become the priests of their domestic church. And those men who are, are ordained priests become the fathers of their ecclesial families. <laughs> you see how I'm in, intentionally mingling the language here. But I don't think uh, matrimony 
and celibacy are as distant as people sometimes make them out to be. The foundation of all fatherhood and motherhood is first to be a son or daughter and then a brother or sister. Here's what the Catechism has to say about priestly celibacy. In paragraph 1579, it says, All the ordained ministers of the Latin Church or Western Church, with the exception of permanent deacons, are normally chosen from among men of faith who live a celibate life and who intend to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, called to consecrate themselves with undivided heart to the Lord and to the affairs of the Lord. They give themselves entirely to God and to men. Celibacy is a sign of this new life to the service of which the church's minister is consecrated, accepting with a joyous heart. Celibacy radiantly proclaims the reign of God, the kingdom of God. I threw that in at the end. So the language the catechism uses there is important. The church chooses from amongst those living celibacy. So there's something fundamental about celibacy. In a sense, it's saying that there's, there's sort of this group of people who are celibates in the church. And from amongst those living celibacy, the church chooses particular ones to become priests. So not all priests are celibate. But what is celibacy? What is this on a deeper level? You know, it's, it's a fancy term we use for those who aren't married, right? Those who are single for the Lord. Uh, when Jesus is talking, I believe, to the Sadducees, he says that some are made eunuchs um, from birth, some are made eunuchs by men, and some are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, literally giving up this faculty of being reproductive physically. Um, but when we use this word celibacy, it comes from a Latin word, celib, and it means singular or alone, singular or alone. And this singularity, this aloneness, uh, is really the core of chastity. It's this being alone, not lonely, but alone with God. Being singular, not directed on yourself. It's not ongoing bachelorhood, but it's being singular on the Lord, right? having your whole life directed to the Lord. When St. Paul talks about this later, he, he encourages people that can accept celibacy to accept celibacy because he says the married person's heart is divided between, between God and the affairs of the world, where the celibate person is more wholly devoted with their heart and mind on the Lord. You know, as Christians, we're all called to the same chastity. We're all called to the same chastity, right? And what chastity is, is this, this total ordering of the self, but especially uh, the sexuality of the person to, to the design of God, to God and to loving others, to becoming a gift to others. So everyone's called to the same chastity. And that, that chastity is, in a negative way of putting it, is simply don't have sex with anyone you're not married to. Right? That's the singular call of chastity. So from this perspective, the celibate person just chooses to be married to one less person than everyone else. Right? You're not giving up all of the men in the world or all of the women in the world. You're giving up one person. But you're also then entering into a relationship with a person. right? With the person of Christ or with his uh, his bride, the church. So the celibate person is is living out of this chaste state, 
but entering into a conjugal relationship with Christ or the church. But everyone is called to this same chastity. The Catechism in paragraph 2339 says, Chastity includes an apprenticeship in self-mastery, which is a training in human freedom. The alternative is clear. Either man governs his passions and finds peace, or he lets himself be dominated by them and becomes unhappy. Man's dignity, therefore, requires him to act out of conscious and free choices as moved and drawn in a personal way from within and not by blind impulses in himself or by mere external consent. Uh, so, so as chaste people, we're all called to live out of this place of freedom. We experience these passions, these draws, and the goal isn't the elimination of passions. It's the ability to choose what's good in the midst of the passions. Um, one person I'm going to quote here in a bit. Um, I lost the name on my, my notes. I'll bring it up later. But uh, she makes a distinction between suppression and repression. Uh, her father was Conrad Bars. And he was a psychologist working in the early 20th century and specifically working on integrating Catholic thought with kind of the, the earliest stages of psychology and psychotherapy. And one of the ideas that, that they emphasize is that, that while we have these passions, these attractions and repulsions to everything we're encountering in the world, either the things around us are acting on us, drawing us to them or pushing away from us away from them and our concupiscible passions or uh, we're, we're experiencing this, uh, this drive toward or away in our uh, irascible passions, in these powerful drives in us. Uh, so what we're called to is to live a life where we're experiencing the world around us honestly and truthfully, right? where, where our passions are still there. They're not suppressed. They're not repressed, but they're present. And in the midst of those drives, we're making a choice either to do what we're being drawn to do or not to do what we're being drawn to do or to do what we're being repulsed by or not to do what we're being repulsed by. But the goal isn't to stop experiencing the passion. The goal is to make a choice in the midst of it. And that's true freedom. It's not the obliteration of passion but it's the ordering of the passions toward what's truly good for us. And so sometimes we, we get into a mode of repressing these passions. And we do this either by trying not to feel them, right, by just trying to squish them down, or by trying to repress them with another passion. Right? For example, you might experience an attraction to someone else, but then have a fear that comes in. So you have this concupiscible passion, this attraction, and the way, that you, the way that you resist that passion is then by imposing upon it an irascible passion, this fear of what could happen. And maybe you literally start thinking of all the bad things that might happen if you choose to act on that passion, right? And, and so that, that, other, that other passion then blunts it, then pushes it away, then stops you from experiencing it. And by doing that, you're repressing it and you build a habit. Anything you do repeatedly, anything we continue to, to do, even in our internal life, we form habits of soul toward them. So you can literally have a habit of repressing your passions, either by another passion coming in that's being imposed upon it 
or by the just the simple suppression of all feeling around it. So chastity is not this repression of passion. Catechism 2347 says, The virtue of chastity blossoms in friendship. It shows the disciple how to follow and imitate him who has chosen us as his friends, who has given himself totally to us and allows us to participate in his divine estate. So chastity blossoms in friendship. Marriage is a particular and special kind of friendship between a husband and wife. Celibacy, on the other hand, is a particular and special kind of friendship with Christ in the church that the priest participates in. So this blossoming in friendship is happening in, in the vocation that we're called to, but then also lives itself out in our particular relationships. And this is going to, I think, be important uh, for the priest as we, we move forward. And I get talking about practicals at the end of this um, episode. So from this perspective, celibacy is not simply not being married. It's supernatural, conjugal relationship with either Christ or the church. I'll say that again. Celibacy is not not being married. It's a supernatural, conjugal relationship with Christ or the church. So the foundation of all communion is solitude. Earlier in, in this season of Physically Spiritual, we talked about solitude. And in John Paul II's Theology of the Body, he, he talks about these great concepts of original solitude and original unity. Original solitude was the fact that Adam, Adam, humankind, was alone amongst the created order uh, in relationship with God and, and knowing the truth and able to act freely. So then able to enter into communion, able to enter into covenant. And then original unity flowed out from that as God formed Eve from Adam's side. And Adam proclaims at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. They had this connection, this togetherness, this covenant with each other. But they were only capable of covenant. They were only capable of this level of connection and communion because of the original solitude, this aloneness amongst the created order. So marriage in a certain sense, also includes a kind of spiritual celibacy. There's an internal solitude that the married person must cultivate in order to live well the sacrament of matrimony. What the heck am I talking about? Am I talking circles here? No. Marriage includes a certain spiritual celibacy. There's an internal solitude that the married person must cultivate in order to live well, the sacrament of matrimony. So in order for me to love my life well, in order for me to love my wife well, sorry, uh, in order for me to enter into that relationship freely and to be a true gift of self, that flows out from this solitude I have with the Lord. Right. So me being a son of God and having this, this brotherhood with others, uh, by which um, I'm supported, then I can be a husband flowing out from that maturity that comes from that spiritual sonship and spiritual brotherhood. Then I can be a spouse. And then from that spousal relationship then flows out my ability to be father, my ability to love. And this same form takes place whether I'm called to chastity in the married state 
or I'm called to chastity in the celibate state. So the celibate lives a solitude with God out of which they enter into a conjugal relationship with Christ or the church. So the difficulties a married person experiences doesn't come from the fact that they have a wife, right? The solution isn't to get rid of your spouse and and live a celibate life. On the other hand, the difficulties that a celibate person might encounter doesn't come from the fact that they don't have a husband or wife. It comes from this more foundational vocation, right? The vocation of all the baptized to be a son or daughter of God, to be a, a brother or sister in the church, and, and it's this more foundational level of relationship with God by which we then live our vocation, whether it be to marriage or celibacy. So some people uh, looking at different crises in the priesthood today, whether it be uh, the abuse crisis or, or different priests uh, leaving, literally choosing not to be priests anymore, even though that character remains by a, a great mercy, the, ch- the church can relieve them of their, their clerical state. And they'll, they'll still have that indelible mark on their soul, but they just won't be working as a priest anymore. Um, so even if you change that state, that's not the solution. Not being celibate isn't the solution to these problems. Otherwise, married people wouldn't abuse people and married people wouldn't get divorced, right? Anyone that's married knows that getting married doesn't magically make your life perfect, doesn't take away your broken desires and wounds and traumas and hurts. And and on the other hand, anyone who's celibate knows not getting married doesn't protect the world from your wounds and traumas and hurts either, right? So so the solution isn't to to change your state, right? The grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. The saying goes, the grass is greener where you water it. Um, And I'm going to link a, a set of talks in the show notes. I forget and I apologize, I forget the lady's name, but she gives us a great series of lectures on her father's work, Conrad Bars. And in these lectures, she said, um, in the celibate state, the person is free to be love without having to make love. The person is free to be love without having to make love. So our, our sexuality our faculty of of bringing life into the world is foundationally our our posture toward the rest of the created order. And that posture toward the rest of the created order is either maleness or femaleness. So as a sexual person, I'm first male in relationship to the rest of the world. It's It's a relational state. So from this perspective, being a man isn't completely devoid of the feminine and being woman isn't completely devoid of the masculine. It's just that in my body, I'm incarnating the masculine in a certain specific way. And then spiritually, I'm also going to be predisposed to the masculine in a certain special way. But the goodness, the excellence and femininity isn't completely devoid in me as a man. Then on the other hand, in a woman, the excellence and goodness of masculinity is not devoid in them either. So fundamentally, I'm a sexual person because I am male or female. And then out of this maleness or femaleness, when I have maturity, right, meaning when I have, in a sense, chastity, when I have this this ordering of my whole person, then I become capable of being conjugal. 
meaning I become capable of entering into a relationship of self-gift by which life enters into the world. And this design is written into our bodies, right? Because regardless of how spiritually mature or emotionally mature we become, we all know that we can still create children physically, right? God still blesses that union of man and woman and brings life into the world. And that's such a great gift. But on the other hand, being mother or father requires a certain level of maturity that isn't necessarily there just because you have a baby, right? And we've, we've all seen people where sometimes mom or dad just leaves. Sometimes they're there they, or they, they quit and stay. Sometimes they just struggle to, to meet the basic needs of what they're being called to. And we're all a work in progress, so, so nobody lives out motherhood and fatherhood perfectly. Uh, so it's out of this maturity that we can enter conjugal love, true conjugal love, not just acted out with the body, but, but the body being a sacrament of the deeper reality of the person. And then by that conjugal love, bring life into the world and not just physical life, but spiritual life. So this is also the life of the celibate. The celibate person living out as a son or daughter of God, a brother or sister in the church, growing in a full maturity, having this kind of chastity, they enter into a conjugal relationship in the mystery of Christ in the church. This is a supernatural relationship too. It's of the sacramental order. It's of the new covenant. And by entering into this relationship and bringing their mature feminine or masculine gift of themselves into the church, They then bear spiritual children into the world and help bring their children into spiritual maturity, into supernatural maturity. So the the person, I'll say this again, the person is free to be love without having to make love. They're becoming someone who God uses uh, for this kind of conjugal love for his people. Here's what St. John Paul II said is in his, a great letter to priests called Pastores Dabovobis. He says, The priest's life ought to radiate this spousal character, which demands that he be a witness to Christ's spousal love, and thus be capable of loving people with a heart which is new, generous, and pure. I love that quote. I'm going to say it again. The priest's life ought to radiate this spousal character, which demands that he be a witness to Christ's spousal love and thus be capable of loving people with a heart which is new, generous, and pure. A heart that's new, generous, and pure, a chaste heart, a heart with this order, right? Not not a suppression or a repression of passions. You know, the journey to chastity isn't the journey of figuring out how to not sexually act out, how to not objectify other people, how to not masturbate, how to not have sex with people you're not married to, right? right? These different behaviors are symptoms of what's going on in the person. So in the person, the, the chaste state is present um, by this complete ordering of the person to God's design. And then that manifests as the capability to live chastely. Right? To, to choose not to objectify someone you see or, or to not masturbate when you have that impulse or to not to have sex with somebody that you're not in a covenant with. Right? So this is this deeper thing that flows out of us. 
Um, but it comes from this more fundamental ordering. And this is what John Paul II is saying, this heart which is new, generous, and pure. In a sense, the, the priest's heart is a fatherly heart by which the faithful can come and rest and experience the love of God the Father. Right? It's a heart of trust. Right? That in the confessional, you can say whatever and experience, the, experience Christ's love. Right? That your words aren't going to be manipulated or you're not going to be taken advantage of. Right? It's a heart by which the priest, uh, by prayer and study and seeking the Lord in meditation, then breaks open the fruit of that relationship with God and feeds the faithful in his flock with the homily, with the sermon he preaches at Mass. Right? Right? This is the, the chaste and celibate heart of the priest by which they bear spiritual children into the world. And, and they radiate this spousal character. Uh, so you can, you can sort of get mixed up in, in either extreme. You can get mixed up on the one hand in some kind of acting out, some kind of, of loss of control, of continuing to struggle with your sexuality into your vowed state, whether you're married or you're celibate. On the other hand, you could struggle with a kind of repression where, um, where you, uh, you, you just stuff those feelings and turn them off or suppress them with another emotion or another passion, by which then you sort of lose that humanity. You lose that warmth. You lose that radiation of spousal love. Um, so you can go on either extreme. I would say the typical expression is actually some kind of oscillation between repression and acting out. Repression, acting out. Repression, acting out. Imagine like a pot of, of boiling water and you can somehow create a perfect seal over it, and then the pressure eventually builds up and spills over, pushes out, right? There's some that might have a sort of more perfect repression where they've just completely shut everything off and and they literally don't feel anymore, and that's how they've accomplished this quasi-celibate state or this sort of surface celibacy. Now, on the other hand, there's some that probably have this extreme acting out where there might be no repression, but they're just sort of acting on all of their whims and desires and maybe even um, struggling with some kind of predatory behavior. But more commonly, we're in this space of oscillation, of repression overflow, repression overflow. So what we need to do is start to, we need to start to go through a healing process. And this healing process looks like the natural growth process. So it's a process of discovering our divine sonship or daughterhood, letting God love us, reading the scripture and experiencing God's love in that, experiencing God's love through the mothers and fathers, whether those here on earth, those in heaven, the, the spiritual mothers and fathers we have, the priests and religious we know, or maybe just the mentors that we have in our life, right? Going through and, and experiencing that love and then learning how to enter into relationships well, right? Chastity blossoms in friendship, the catechism says. So learning how to do friendship well is key to chastity. And one of the, the things that's important for doing friendship well is vulnerability, right? Are you willing to talk about your stuff, to share about what you're struggling with, to, to bring up what's difficult, to not just be a presentation of yourself? And then finally, growing into maturity is the willingness to be self-gift. And in the midst of all of this, it's experiencing the truth of the situation. And part of the truth of the situation is your passions. So can you feel it, right? When you, maybe that attractive person walks by you, can you, can you just feel the desire to look at them and lust after them? Just hold it there. Don't push it away. Don't suppress it. 
just let it be there and then choose not to act out on it or choose to encounter that person, right? Choose to look at their face where, where their person is being more powerfully expressed, more explicitly expressed and, and to engage in them, to ask a question of them, uh, to, to, to see that, that they have hopes and dreams and that they're a full person. You know, the next time you're, you're home alone at, at the end of the day and you feel that, that itching, gnawing, restless thing that we all get, um, you know, don't repress it with some, don't, don't just turn on the TV or don't, uh, you know, go on the internet and get into lusting after something or, or maybe you're going to get into fantasy or, or memory or just leave and maybe go to a bar and drink or something, right? Don't act it out in some way, but can you sit with that suffering? Can you just sit with that emotion and be with it? And then choose something otherwise, right? Freely choose something otherwise that's going to actually address the underlying root cause. Right? Maybe go out into nature and experience beauty in the natural world. Maybe uh, do some kind of creative hobby like music or cooking or artwork or something like that. Maybe you do just need to rest, take a nap, put yourself to bed, right? There's all these different things we can do to, to direct our life to deal with the root of what's actually happening. And this is where uh, the flowering can happen in the married state or the celibate state. All right, I want to land the plane with a few practicals. So if you're a lay person, what can you do for your, your priest? What can you do for your deacons, for your bishop? When I would say pray to have the eyes of the Father for them. Deacons, priests, and bishops are men. They're men, and, and, and they're men with trauma and wounds, a past, with their own hopes and dreams, their own struggles, their own internal conflicts and fears and weaknesses and everything else. Um, so oftentimes we, we, we should hold them to a higher standard because they have a special grace and ordination and they're called to be conformed to Christ. But on the other hand, when we fail, we should also hold them with a greater mercy because, I mean, they're the, the subject of a lot of attack. Just think of all the headlines that have come out about the church over the last 50 years. Uh, a lot of it is priests struggling, just acting out of wounds, making a mess, traumatizing others. Uh, you know, they're men and, and, and they deserve to be held to a higher standard, but they also deserve an amount of mercy. So we need to pray to have the eyes of the Father for them, that we can pray for them, be patient with them, and love them. Invite your priest into your life. This is number two. Invite your priest into your life, not to be someone for you, but to be someone with you. Not to be someone for you, but to be someone with you. Right? We're all called to a, whole, a full maturity in Christ. And on some level, the priest is always going to be a spiritual father. But they, they need to come into your life in a meaningful way and experience, uh, experience the domestic church of your home. Right? They need to experience you loving your wife and your wife loving you, they need, or, or if you are the wife, your husband loving you and you loving your husband. They need to experience you loving your children and educating their children. They need to, to be with your kids in, in a chaste and holy way. And they need to experience this kind of domestic love because we as lay people are an image to the priest of their conjugal call. To, to enter into the spousal relationship of Christ in the church. And they're a reminder for us that we need to enter into this more basic celibate solitude of being alone with God, 
that we can come out from this and become gift to the world, that we can be love and not just make love. So we need to invite the priest into our life, not to be someone for us, but to be someone with us. Uh, Bring them into your family. Your conjugal love and the education of your children illustrate for them in a physical way, in a sacramental way, what they're called to be for their their church. So they need you. They need you. They don't need um, your charity or for you to volunteer at the parish or for you to write them a nice letter or send them a book they probably don't have time to read. They need your prayer and they need your love. They need your relationship. They, They need to be a human with you. Um, And it's out of this nature that God brings forth the supernatural. All right, so maybe you're a priest or a religious sister, a deacon whose spouse has passed away, or a bishop. You need to fight all repression of feelings. Fight all repression of feelings. You know, there's going to be times where you need to suppress your feelings, where you're not going to act on what you feel. Um, But on the other hand, we need to move toward our passions being guided by our reason, not our passions being obliterated. So you may have achieved a sort of a surface celibacy as a priest where you don't act out anymore and praise God. Or or maybe you're on the other hand and and you're ordained and you continue to act out in some way with with pornography or with masturbation or or in some other way. You're going to feel an an extreme and immense pressure, both a spiritual pressure a supernatural pressure from the enemy and also just a, a natural human of, of shame and, and, and to keep it all a secret. It, it, I, it can be overwhelming. I spent four years in the seminary and I've felt that in sort of a, a minuscule way, but I couldn't even imagine after being ordained that when you struggle, just the shame and the pressure that you must feel. So we need to to fight that kind of, repression, acting out dynamic. And that begins by beginning to feel those feelings, beginning to let them be there, give them permission to be present because the feelings in themselves aren't sins. It's the choices we make with them. And then in the midst of experiencing them, starting to make choices, right? At first, there might be like a boiling over effect, right? We're we're allowing those emotions to be there are going to push you over the edge. And I'm linking that set of talks, um, by Conrad uh, Barr's daughter, um, but based on his work in the link, and it's a great resource where she talks about some of the stuff about celibacy, Uh, but moving toward that integration of those feelings. I think there's a great temptation amongst the clergy um, that we, we flip things on their head. So we're all called to this solitude with God and unity with others, solitude with God and unity with others. And I think sometimes in a priest's life, the temptation can be that all of my time with God is when I'm with others and all the time that's my sort of personal time is time alone. So I'm always together with others when I'm with God, right? All of my prayer revolves around the liturgy, whether it be at mass or the other sacraments or the liturgy of the hours, the liturgy of the hours, even when you're by yourself is a communal act, just by, by doing what it says. So, so by doing that, you're avoiding this kind of mental prayer, this solitude with God, this entering into the pain and suffering of being alone with the Lord 
and, and just dealing with being human in the midst of that, entering into the scripture in a relational way, or just entering into the, you can make the liturgy of the hours into a meditation too, of entering into the Psalms and the other readings in there in a relational way with the Lord. And then on the other hand, you might fall into the temptation of all of your quote unquote personal time you spend alone. You spend in isolation, maybe not in bad ways, maybe studying and with your hobbies, but does anyone really know you? Does anyone know your heart? Does anyone know your thoughts? Does anyone know your desires, your fears, your hopes, right? Does anyone have access to that? Because if no one does, that's not celibacy. That's an inhuman state. So as a celibate person, you, you have to have unity with others. You have to have, uh, there has to be a rebalancing where your, your prayer with the Lord is a mix of communal prayer and solitude prayer, of mental prayer, and your personal time is a mix of, of time with others, really meaningful time with others that sometimes includes radical vulnerability. The life of celibacy is not a life without vulnerability. And then on the other hand, learning how to enter into solitude with the Lord in your personal time too. So learning how to practice the presence of God through your whole life. So rebalancing solitude with God and unity with others, having healthy mental prayer and also radical vulnerability in your life. Well, thank you for joining me on this episode of Physically Spiritual. Uh, I this. It's been kind of a, a winding episode where I've shared some lofty ideas, but thank you for sticking through to the end. Uh, please leave any comments, questions. Um, maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're a lay person that's struggling. Maybe you're, you're a priest, deacon, or bishop who's struggling. Um, if you don't have anyone else, I want to be there for you. Email me at becominggift at gmail.com or go to my website, becominggift.com. Um, you know, and I'm here for you if you need someone to talk to and work through any of the things we talk about here on the show.